Hey, what's up? I'm Pastor Robert. Welcome to Riverside Friends Church, our continued look at Advent. I'm just noticing that my microphone is probably a little loud. There, that's probably better. If it didn't change anything on your end, my bad, but it changed something on my end. Okay, we're going to continue our look at Advent. Today we're looking at joy. I want to start out by just giving a shout out. A couple of my good friends just had a baby, a Russell and Morgan. Hey, I want to say hi, and your baby's adorable. It's like super exciting, right? And one of the things that I've been wondering about in terms of like thinking about joy this week is that how does Jesus look at this family? They just had a baby, and by all accounts, like Russell and Morgan, they're just like faithfully following the Lord. They're awesome. They serve in their church, and they love Jesus. It's really cool. They're just awesome people. I'm just so excited for them. And I think about like how does Jesus see them? And so what I did is I, let me pull this up. Nope, that's not the right one. I've already screwed this up. Hey, pretend you didn't see that. How do we see Jesus generally? Because oftentimes, so this is a painting. This, this painting is from like the 6th century. It's found on this like wooden plate in Sinai in Egypt. It's called Christ Pantocrator. It's like an icon um, or iconoclasm. I think that's the word. I'm a theologian. I should know that or something. Got a degree in this. Uh, this is, you know, a classic. And then we can jump ahead. This is Titian's Christ carrying the cross. Jesus, or excuse me, now is um, Caravaggio's Disciples of Emmaus. This one is from Da Vinci. This is Salvatore Mundi. This is from a modern day one. Uh, Georgi Chimevs, The Good Shepherd. I actually have a copy of this one. I have like a wooden one of this that I kind of keep up on my a bookcase back over there. Yeah. And let's see. I think there's one more. But yeah, this is uh, Warner Solomon's Jesus Christ. I think I'm missing one here. Could be one of Jesus standing at the door knocking, but I think it's it for whatever reason. Oh, whatever. You know what? You know the painting, Jesus standing at the door knocking, is in the garden, whatever. The question I have, why does Jesus look so serious in all of these? Like Jesus in all the, I guess that one makes sense. That's a pretty serious moment. But why does Jesus look so serious here? <clears throat> Today's sermon's about joy. And I think our view of God and spirituality can sometimes be like very somber. And my friends, Russell and Morgan, they just had a baby. That's exciting. And I don't think that Jesus looked at them like this here, or like this here, or like this, or like this, or like this, or like this. Today's sermon's about joy. You know, when we deal with God, it's a very like serious subject. Boom. If you know me, you know that I'm a very serious person. So there will be no jokes nor any joy in this sermon on joy. Buckle up. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1. You want to flip there in your Bibles or get there, just listen along. That's fine. Whatever. It's all good. In the beginning of Luke, there's this old guy named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, and they are barren. They have no kids. Zechariah, he's a priest, and he is called to go and do his duty at the temple. And being a priest was established by bloodline. He didn't choose that. That was something he was just like born into. And there were tons of priests 
And so oftentimes, like people might go their whole lives and only serve as a priest in the temple, maybe a handful of times, if even that. It wasn't like a common thing. So Zechariah, in the custom, like narrow down who's going to do this because there's so many people. They got to figure out how are we going to choose this? What they do is they cast lots. They like throw dice to go into the temple to figure out who this person's going to be. And so Zechariah, he's chosen by dice, by lot. And he goes behind the first curtain and he offers this incense to the Lord. And so what, like what there was is there's this like this room behind a curtain where you would burn incense and offer up a sacrifice to the Lord. And then there was another room behind that, which was the Holy of Holies. And there's a curtain there that separates the two curtains. You can go behind the first one if you're a priest. You go behind the second one only once a year if you're the high priest. So he's behind this first curtain. And that's where our verses pick up. He's offering incense back there. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 11 to 15. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, oh, sorry, I got to pause this. Okay, sorry about that. I had to take an important phone call. Uh, so Zechariah, he's behind the first curtain. Let me, let me get caught back up to where we were. Sorry about this. Zechariah is behind the first curtain. This angel appears to him. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 11 to 15. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. So there's a fallacy that comes about when we like deal with morality. There's a fallacy that we kind of believe in dealing with morality. Like when we work and we think in the realm of morality, we are dealing in terms of what ought to be. That's what morality is. Like when we're thinking in terms of what is moral, we're thinking of what ought to happen, what should happen. And there's a fallacy that we believe. It says like when you know what you ought to do, you can do it. When you know what you ought to do, you can do it. That's something that we kind of like take in and believe that we sort of think like knowledge is power. And that's the lie, that knowledge is power is a lie. Just because I know what I should do doesn't mean I have the power to do it. Just because I know I ought to do something. And even if I know how to do that thing, that doesn't mean that I can. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they believe they should have kids and they're unable She's barren. They're old. That's their, like, that's their ought. And yet, like, the knowledge that they should have kids in that culture doesn't mean that they can. They're both righteous people. Verse 6 says that they live blameless lives and observed all the Lord's commands. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're doing the right things, and yet their desire to have a kid is going unfulfilled. There is a sadness that not everything we desire will come true just because we are Christians. Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful, and they can't have kids, and nothing they do can change that. I think we need to understand grace. Let me just kind of throw something in there, right? Grace. 
grace is not unmerited favor. Like that's kind of the, the definition that the church uses often, that grace is unmerited favor. And I don't think that's quite fully, fully true. That's true, but it's not fully true. I think there's a better definition. Grace is God doing in our lives what we are unable to do ourselves. Grace is God doing in our lives what we are unable to do ourselves. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're unable to have kids. They want kids. They pray for kids. In verse 13, the angel says, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son. You'll name him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. So let's take a moment and pause right here. Because Zechariah's response to the angel is interesting. In the narrative, it's going to come up again, right? Gabriel tells Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. You're going to have a baby. And Zechariah says, how can this be? I'm old. My wife is old. And the angel Gabriel responds, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you'll become mute unable to speak until the day these things occur. And Zechariah is mute. He's unable to speak. He goes home and Elizabeth gets pregnant. In verse 24, it says, after those days, Elizabeth conceived. And I got questions. I got some questions. Scripture doesn't say this, but Zechariah, he must have been like a really look, good looking guy or he had some like massive game that he's spitting. Because how did Elizabeth get pregnant when Zechariah can't even speak? Did he like, did he give her a look, like a little wink? Like what happened? Did he like write her a note and be like, listen, an angel struck me mute, but he said we're having a baby, so take off your clothes. I don't know, like these are the things they don't teach you in seminary. But whatever like physically occurred, right? Whatever physically occurred in this moment, grace happened. Grace happens. God is doing in a thing, God is doing a thing in their lives that they are unable to do themselves. That's what grace is. It's God doing a thing in our lives that we're unable to do ourselves. And now in this moment, grace has happened and they're gonna have a baby. They are incapable of having a baby. They've tried, and now they're old and they're barren, and Elizabeth's body's changed, and she can't, they can't choose to have a baby. But grace happens and God makes it possible. And God is graceful and brings about a reality in their lives that they can't do themselves. God is graceful and brings about a reality in their lives that they can't do themselves. And because of God's grace in their lives, the baby will be a joy, and many will rejoice because of his birth. God's grace brings joy. God's grace brings joy. So, like, once upon a time, I'm going to start with this. Let me tell a story here. Once upon a time, there was a stalk of wheat that poked its tiny head up through the dirt. It was just barely a seed, and it poked its tiny head up through the dirt, and it experienced the sun for the first time. For the first moment, it felt the sun shining down on its head. And the stalk of wheat grew day by day, and little by little, it tried with all its might to stretch its neck and point its face towards the warm sun. One day, a new plant popped up next to the wheat. Then another one just like it. Then another one. These plants grew faster than the wheat. They bullied the wheat. They roared. 
This sun belongs to us. We are dandelions, and we need the sun more. See what I did there? Because they're dandelions, they roar. Pretty good, right? The little wheat was scared, and he didn't know what to do, so he hung his head down low. And just then, a farmer came along and saw the little wheat with his head hung low, and he saw the roaring dandelions, and he pulled them up by their roots, and the little wheat felt the sun on his head again and stood upright. In the Christian faith, nobody changes on their own. We all need the help of the farmer to pick out the weeds. We can't take on the weeds in our lives by ourselves. There is a lie in our Christian world that I need to address. The lie says you can choose. You can choose to be joyful. You can choose to be peaceful. You can choose to be loving. You can choose to pull the weeds out of your own lives. The wheat can't choose to see the sun over the dandelions. They grow too, fa too fast and too tall. They choke out the wheat. You can't choose joy. And even if you know that you should be joyful, you can't choose that. The knowledge of being joyful is good, but it's not enough to, be, to provide the power to be joyful. The will, like our hearts are impotent. We're unable to do this. And Paul talks about this in like Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do. I don't get it. For what I want to do, I don't do. I hate what I do. And he goes on in verse 18 and 19 to say, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. The reality is, like there are these lies that the church has bought into. The lie comes from a place that misunderstands sin. In our sin, we are incapable. In our sin, we are incapable of choosing peace or joy or love or hope or whatever. Our wills have become corrupted by sin. Our wills are overshadowed by sin. And anybody who says you can just choose joy does not understand the height of sin. And when we understand grace, God's response to our sin through Jesus, we know that peace, joy, love, are a part of the fruit that comes from God's spirit at work in us. We don't choose those. God works those in us. So check this out. Like God wants us to be joyful. God wants us to be joyful people. And the implication of that, of that statement is profound when paired with the fact that we can't choose to be joyful. God wants us to be joyful. We can't choose to be joyful. Has God just left us then on a hook? God wants us to be joyful. We can't choose to be joyful, but God brings about joy in us. And this changes what the Christian life means. This changes what it means to be a Christian life. The Christian life is not one where we choose the good. The Christian life is encountering God and him bringing goodness in our lives. If you have any sort of joy or peace or love or hope, that's God's work in your life. That's where God has been at work in your life to bring that about. God has reached down and plucked the weeds of your life. And by that grace, you can be joyful, peaceful, loving, whatever. You didn't pick those weeds. God did. 
Stop taking credit for God's work in your life. If you say, I did that, I chose that, you take credit from God and give it to yourself. If there is an area in your life that is not joyful, that is not peaceful, that is not loving, that's an area of your life that God has yet to work in. Allow God to reach down and pull those weeds out. That's what God does. And if you want to destroy, if you want to destroy a community, if you want to destroy a community, you can do it with one question from your heart. I did that. Why can't you? I got clean. Why can't you? I forgave. Why can't you? I dot, dot, dot. Why can't you? That'll destroy the community. You take credit for God's work in your life. Six months go by in the Bible. Gabriel comes to Mary in Nazareth and he says to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. She's confused and she wonders about this greeting, but he goes on, you're going to have a baby. Gabriel tells Mary, you're going to have a baby. Name him Jesus. He's going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the most high. He'll be given the kingdom of the throne of his ancestor, David, by the Lord God. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob. And then Mary says the line. Mary says the line that Zachariah said in verse 34. How can this be? And here's the tension. How is the angel Gabriel going to respond to Mary now? Because six months ago, he presented this message to Zachariah. And he struck Zachariah mute because he asked this question. And now Mary's doing the same thing. And we kind of know what answer's coming, right? We know what, how Gabriel's going to respond. We've seen it before. We've read this. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Sorry, Mary. You're toast. And Mary says, how can this be since I am a virgin? And here's how Gabriel answers her. This is verse, Luke chapter 1, verse 34 to 38. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. <coughs> and the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she'll be said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Kind of disappointing. I kind of wanted Mary to get struck down. Do you think God like waited six months to tell Mary just so he could like teach Gabriel a lesson? Like maybe Gabriel came back to heaven after meeting Zachariah and God's like, hey, we need to talk. You can't go around striking people mute just because you don't like their words. And then God gave Gabriel like breathing lessons for when he got angry. So then Gabriel, six months go by, Gabriel hears like Mary's question and he just starts counting to 10, and Mary doesn't know why. Like rubbing like the bridge of his nose, and one, two. That's not what happened. Gabriel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will overwhelm you when you'll be with child. And what's the difference between Zechariah and Mary? I don't think the lesson is that Gabriel learned a lesson from God that is unaccounted for here in Scripture. Zechariah's question, though, how can this be? Zechariah's question of how can it be comes from a place of unbelief. Zechariah has prayed and he's sought out having a child and he wants one. And now God through the, Gabriel, through the angel Gabriel is saying, your prayer's been answered. And Zechariah responds in unbelief. How can this be? Even in his prayers, he is doubted and doesn't think it possible. 
And I think that says something about prayer, right? Because our prayers are not dependent upon our belief. Just because we believe our prayers real hard doesn't mean they're going to answer. Because Zechariah, he's prayed, but it seems like he doesn't even believe his prayers. Because when the angel says, your prayers have been heard and they've been answered and you're going to have a baby, Zechariah goes, wait, really? My prayers? You see, our prayers aren't dependent upon our belief. They are dependent on God's grace. So pray big. Pray big prayers. Because they don't depend on your believing them. They depend on God's grace. Mary, though, is not in unbelief. Mary hasn't asked for this. Her question of how can this be doesn't come from unbelief, but disbelief. She knows what it takes to have a baby. She says, listen, I'm a virgin. I know what it takes to have a baby. I know what hasn't happened here. How can this be? If you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't understand where babies come from, see Pastor Paul after the service. He's got charts for you. He's got the full in-depth way. He's had four of them. But he knows what's up. Mary's question. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know where that came from. Mary's question is not from a place of unbelief, but disbelief. She knows biology. She knows what hasn't happened. And I think there's a lesson here. That joy comes from unexpected places. Mary's response to this unexpected news is, Here am I, servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And a little later in verse 46 to 47, Mary sings a song. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's response in her disbelief is joy at unexpected news. See, a baby upsets life. They become the priority. Everything changes. That's why Sarah and I don't have kids. Um, Mary had an encounter with God through the angel Gabriel. And she responds with joy as compared to Zachariah who responds with doubt. I think there's something to be said about, about like allowing God to bring joy in the unexpected and unplanned. Now, I'm not saying have an unplanned pregnancy and receive God's joy. I am saying like let God impregnate each unplanned moment with his joy. There's an old song. Maybe you've heard it before. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Oh. You know this one. Nobody plans to meet God. I can't put on my calendar, today I will introduce that person to God, or today I'm going to meet God. Nobody plans to have joy. We don't put joy in our calendars like joy. We don't, from 145 to, one, to 215 today, I will have joy. That doesn't work. Joy is unexpected and unplanned, it's spontaneous. God shows up unexpectedly, leading us to encounter him with joy. And joy is really a reflection of God, of who is good and joyful. This is why the picture of Jesus like never seemed to make sense. Instead, instead of this picture, I like this one. Jesus seems to be like looking right at us. He's got this little smile. He seems warm and inviting, even as he's maybe dirty and rugged and rough. It's one of my favorite pictures of Jesus. This is Jesus who brings joy. Any joy that we experience is a reflection of him. It is Jesus smiling through us into a world that longs to be pregnant with hope. 
Mary, after hearing the words of Gabriel, leaves and heads off to Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. And Elizabeth and Mary, they're related. They're likely cousins. And in verse 38, Mary says, let this happen. In verse 39, Mary goes to Elizabeth's house. She has already conceived the baby Jesus. And it's, it's interesting that whatever happened, like however Mary conceived Jesus, however God conceived the baby Jesus inside of Mary, that's just skipped over in, in scripture. Like it doesn't say how that happened. It's just, it's unimportant to the story. But when Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, she's already pregnant. And Elizabeth and Mary, they have a great conversation together. And Zechariah, he's just quiet. He's pretty quiet the whole time. It's pretty sus. Mary gives a greeting to Elizabeth. And as she does so, the baby in Elizabeth leaps for joy. Here's the text. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 to 45. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. And when she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her room, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And I think this story, this encounter between Mary and Elizabeth, not only shows the unexpectedness of joy that wells up inside of us, it shows that joy happens in community. John, the baby inside of Elizabeth, recognizes the baby inside of Mary, and he leaps for joy at the presence of Jesus. Being together in the presence of the community of Jesus allows us to experience more joy than we would on our own. Like Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah, silently off to the side, they have this intimate moment where they experience this joy through having been touched by God. Joy happens in community. And like even for our introverted friends, even for those of us who are like really introverted, joy happens in a community where you are loved and where you love. And we sort of intuitively know this is true because imagine like the best Christmas you've ever had and the worst. And I'm going to imagine, I'm going to like project out there, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. The best Christmas you've ever had is when you were surrounded by people that you love and who loved you. And the worst is probably when you were separated from those people. And Elizabeth, <coughs> she carries like within her, within her womb, the physical John the Baptist. And Mary carries within her the physical Jesus. And when they meet, when they meet together, when Mary and Elizabeth meet together, John leaps for joy within the womb. Let me spiritualize this for a second. We carry God in us, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We spiritually carry God within us as everywhere we go. Every time we meet another person, we have the opportunity to leap for joy at the presence of God within the presence of another. We can share God's presence with those around us and we can embrace the presence of God, that of God in every other person. Every person in here is an opportunity to unexpectedly encounter Jesus and leap for joy. And when we are lonely, it's hard to recognize the need we have for community. This season can be challenging. Christmas is hard for a lot of people. I want you to know that there's space for here for you. And I hope if you're able, 
that you're going to stick around for a Christmas lunch today. There is space for you here. And I hope in this community, you encounter Jesus within us and that your soul leaps for joy. But here's what we've seen. Joy is not a choice we make. It is a gift of God's grace doing in us what we cannot do ourselves. Like the wheat cannot beat the weeds, we need God to do this work in our lives. You don't create joy. God does. Joy often comes unexpectedly. God creates it unexpectedly. So let God impregnate each unplanned moment with his joy. And finally, joy is most often found in community. And I pray you would find that community here. And today, I hope that you find joy in our Christmas lunch. If you can't stick around, I understand there's no hard feelings. I hope you find unexpected joy in unplanned moments with friends today and this week. And I pray that you will keep your heart ready and waiting to experience Jesus and that your heart will leap for joy at his sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, very thankful that you, well, I'm very thankful that I'm not in charge of my joy because I can screw it up more than anybody else. But Lord, I ask that you would just continue to just reveal that joy within us so that, that I can just have more of it. And would you just help me just be a part of this good community that unexpectedly shares joy with one another? And we just pray this in your name. Amen.